You have two texts to turn to this evening. They're Exodus 20, one simple verse at the end of the Ten Commandments. And from there, we're going to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Please stand. What you hear now is not the word of man, but the word of the living God, inspired by God. Please give it your dutiful attention. Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now please turn from there to Philippians chapter 4. And I'd actually like to begin reading at verse 4. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now, At length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Thus far the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. We ask now, Lord, for your help, not because we believe that you are reluctant to grant it, but because the very opposite is true. We believe that you are a God who is very generous, our strength to help in our time of need. And so we pray that you would attend the reading and especially the preaching of your word, that in spite of our many obvious sins and frailties, that you grow us in godliness, granting us more and more likeness into the image of our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated. The title of the sermon, in many ways, says it all, coveting or content. And I'd like to refer to now three commercials that I don't think you're ever going to see. Three commercials or ads that I doubt you're ever going to see. The first which is this, be content with what you have. The second is, stop lusting, stop craving, you're fine. And the third is, You've got plenty already, just go home. Three unlikely commercials or ads that you will ever see. And in contrast, we might think of almost the endless list of commercials and ads uh, that seem to know something about us and speak into that something and say virtually the opposite. I remember years ago when the leading ad for McDonald's was, uh, you deserve a break today. And I don't know what I did to deserve that break, but apparently they feel pretty confident about it. And even now, the highly popularized Burger King commercial, uh, some of you probably will begin singing it in your heads, and I apologize for that, but BK, have it your way, and the most important line is, you rule. Well, there's something 
that these commercials seem to not only say about us, uh, but something that they seem to know about us. And what they seem to know about us is that we are a pe- people who by nature tend to covet, who by nature tend to crave those things that we do not have, and that they know by poking at that, uh, somehow it seems to get a hook in our mouth that draws us unto them to purchase their wares. This evening we're thinking about the 10th commandment. In many ways, it is a beautiful commandment, but even as we read from the Heidelberg earlier, it's also a very piercing command. In some ways, uh, it is uh, the most difficult command to wrestle with, and you'll understand that as we work through our text. Let's think for a moment about a definition of coveting. What is coveting? What does it mean to covet? Well, I'm going to give you my own definition here. Uh, Coveting is a sinful desire of something that belongs to someone else. A sinful desire of something that belongs to someone else. There may be other ways to define it, and certainly uh, better definitions are out there, but we'll work with that one. And I think it's arguable that there is a reason why this commandment, the command not to covet, uh, comes at the end of the Ten Commandments. In many ways, it is the stream into which all the other commandments flow. What I mean by that is that in a certain sense, the last commandment, the tenth commandment, arguably is a summary of the rest of them. And when you think about it, all other sins and struggles flow uh, from a covetous heart. But there's also something uniquely piercing about the tenth commandment, in that it's the only one that you actually can't see someone doing or hear them when they commit it. In other words, it's easy to see the other commandments being broken, but you cannot see into a person's heart. Can you look at a person now around the room and tell whether or not they are coveting? But in contrast, if a person is murdered, that you can see and will know about. If a person commits adultery, that is an act in the flesh, again, at least in some way uh, externally visible. If something is stolen, something is stolen, and therefore it has gone missing. And even lying is something that can be heard uh, with the ears. So all the other commandments, in a certain sense, have a visible, a viewable dynamic, but not so with coveting. Coveting is that sin that really is, in many ways, a sin of the heart that exposes the reality and the disposition of the heart. And so, at least as I understand it, all other commandments, in a certain sense, flow into it. It has a intimate relationship with the Eighth Commandment, not to steal. But if stealing is an act, coveting is the desire from which the act itself flows. This is the commandment that most pierces into the heart and gets beyond the skin. It gets uh, beyond the flesh. It exposes what's really on the inside of us. And that's why the Tenth Commandment is truly piercing and unmasking in so many ways. It's not simply a sin against man in a horizontal sense, but is a sin against God foremost in a vertical sense. To covet in and of itself and all by itself declares and reveals our dissatisfaction with God and the life that he has given us. That's what makes it such a heinous sin, is that coveting exposes at the end of the day, God, we are not satisfied with you. We want more. We crave more. And we will not be satisfied until we have more. Just like we saw a few weeks ago with the 8th commandment, uh, the 10th commandment also bears a unique relationship with the first sins in the garden. 
Or if in the Eighth Commandment uh, we see that revelation where Adam uh, stole that fruit of the tree. Well, the Tenth Commandment exposes the sin from which that stealing came. God put Adam in the garden. Adam was created in such a way that when you pause and think about it, what did he lack? What did Adam lack that God withheld? What did Adam need that God did not give? Is there some way that as created in the Garden of Eden, Adam uh, was there as one who had to steal in order to get what he needed to get by with in this world? He lacked nothing, and he needed nothing that God did not give him. God designed Adam in such a way that God was to be his delight. God was to be his satisfaction. God was to be his source of joy. Everything that God created was for Adam's enjoyment unto God's glory. So how did sin enter the picture? God created a good man, and he put him in a good place, in a good world, surrounding him with good things. But sin entered the world, not when Adam's hands first began to reach, but when Adam's heart first began to covet. When he looked around at the things that he had and said, not enough. When he looked straight up at the God who had made him and said, not satisfying. Instead of being satisfied with God himself and the good things that God had given to Adam, Adam became fixed on the one thing that God said, Adam, you cannot have. The fruit of that particular tree. And then Adam begins to look an awful lot like one of us. How do you almost certainly guarantee that your kids will do something that you don't want them to do? How do you create that? self-fulfilling prophecy. It's by telling them not to do it. You think he came up with that? That's as old as our first father, Adam. You could almost picture him walking around the garden, kind of looking over at it and saying, no. Looking at it again, saying, boy, I surely want it. Looking at it, fixating on it. And at some point, it became that for which he would reach. But imagine the question within his heart. It's speculation to say it this way but we could still imagine, it's not too far off, that at some point Adam has to begin wondering in his heart, is God holding something back from me? Would my life actually be better if I took more than God has given? Why won't he give me the one thing that I desire? What's wrong with me taking it anyway? Can God really be good if he does not give me all that I want? How many times has a parent had that conversation? If you really love me, You wouldn't just give me what I need, you'd give me everything that I want. And the fact that you won't give it shows that you must not be good or love me enough. This is the kind of folly, the stupidity, even the sin that somehow slowly crept up into Adam's heart until it finally had its grip, its reach all around his heart and pulled him down from the 10th commandment into the 8th and then Adam stole So again, this, the last of the Ten Commandments, in a certain sense, is the first commandment that was broken. The last became the first. It is the first sin, a sin of the heart, from which all other sins flow. When the New Testament thinks about this command, it also shows that one of the things that it does is it increases our awareness of sin by telling us specific things that we ought not to covet for. Even the Old Testament Uh, has this language embodied in it. So the commandment is not simply don't covet, but it's not to covet specific things that are given with a list. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, 
his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Now, I'm confident that we're not struggling much here with our neighbor's oxes or donkeys. But if you think about what those things represented in the Old Testament, in an agrarian lifestyle, it's pretty easy to translate what it is they would mean in the modern sense. House and spouse, you understand well, and we ought not to covet our neighbor's house, his spouse, all the possessions of his house, his cars, his money, anything that belongs to your neighbor. And notice that final uh, all-inclusive last phrase, anything that belongs to your neighbor. Why is that language used? Because we're capable of coveting everything under the sun. Everything that we see can be turned into something for which we covet. And the irony is, if you look at it carefully and think about it uh, with, uh, with reflection, is that all the things that are here described in and of themselves are actually good things. The list given in Exodus twenty seventeen is not a list of sinful things, a house, a donkey, an ox, a spouse. Those are all good things. None of them are intrinsically evil. They are good things for whom we can develop an unholy desire. That's the problem. It's not with the things in and of themselves. Uh, this is why the Tenth Commandment even relates so much to idolatry. Idolatry is an unhealthy, unbiblical, sinful relationship uh, with things in this world. And what can we make an idol out of? Virtually everything. What can we covet in this world? Virtually everything. It is something of a fatal Attraction. And here's a question that you won't like. Which of us is free from it? Which of us can say, I do not covet, without breaking another command and saying, I did not lie? Paul said in Romans that he would not have understood, truly understood, his own personal sin apart from the commandment not to covet. Because the other commands Paul could look at and say, you know, there's a sense in which I've never killed anybody. And you know, that, that adultery thing, I've, I've kept it together. I've not ran off with one of my neighbor's wives. And there are no ox or donkey in my backyard that belong to myself. And I haven't stolen anything from my neighbor. But then he came to this command not to covenant. And he's like, whoa, wait a minute. <clears throat> How many things have my hands not touched, yet my heart actually craved? How many times have I lusted unbiblically, unrighteously for things in this world, even though perhaps I did not reach out and take them the same way? So this commandment becomes the one that enables the Apostle Paul to understand how deeply and extensively his sin is, and it has the same effect for us. If we were to think honestly about how often we covet, it would embarrass us. If somehow uh, the covetous thoughts that we have were spoken out loud, it would be nonstop. And bothersome. And when you think about it, young people, old people, who is accepted from this? Who struggles more with it, the young or the old? I actually think it's a curious question. Children seem to come out of the womb reaching. Toddlers are experts at coveting. Just ask those who work in our nursery. Kids are constantly jealous on the playground. Have you ever spent 15 to 30 minutes on uh, on our back lawn, they're masters at it. And then we grow up into puberty and talk about our teenagers who obsess over their own image and covetously uh, crave the image of others, whether it's uh, jealousy, wanting to look more like other people, or lusting after those of the opposite sex. 
And again, the secular world has illustrated this uh, perfectly well by illustrating it. We have this fantastic term that sums up uh, how self-centered and covetous we actually are. And it comes along with the camera. It's called a selfie. How perfect was that? Young adults, as they grow on past teenage years, often tend to measure happiness in terms of possessions, status, and relationships with other people. Grown adults are often tempted while living in the suburbs to want to keep up with the Joneses. And what happens when your neighbor gets a new car? Norman Rockefeller was asked, and he was a, at one time one of the richest men in the entire world, and he was, he was asked, so how much more would be enough? You know what his answer was? Just a little bit more. Jackie Gleason had a wonderful view of moderation. All things in moderation, he said, especially moderation. Pastors are not above it. Pastors can envy other pastors' gifts. What a strange idea uh, to envy the giftedness and ability of another pastor or their buildings or their influence or their, or their, or their. I think you get the point. Women envy other women for their beauty. Men envy other men for their success. And in a certain sense, uh, the American dream, from a biblical sense, can become a living nightmare. It reminds us of a scene out of the Odyssey that I've referred to before, uh, where our heroes, we are told, have been lulled to sleep. The idols of comfort and ease have done them in. And one could wonder, when shall they awake We might wonder, when shall we awake? There's another cliche that you have heard, and I'm going to pull this thread just a little bit uh, and put it in question form. When shall we learn that the old adage actually is right, that the best things in life are free? What do we mean by that? Well, what is the best thing in life? Do you know what the best thing in life is? It is Jesus. Jesus is the best thing in life. And you know what's kind of interesting? Is you can't put a sentence together that says something like this, I covet Jesus. In fact, in many ways, what we find is we want him too little. We want, crave, covet all the things of this world. But do you covet Jesus? Do you crave him? Maybe it's an awkwardly worded question. To say it differently, the one thing people need most is often the thing they last want. And that is Jesus. The most obvious remedy to this world's coveting is actually found in Jesus. And what is it that we need? To plunge a little deeper, what we need most is not more stuff. What we need most is not just a little bit more. What we need most is to be saved from our sin, our selfishness, and our coveting. If the best things in life are free, the best thing in a Christian's life is that we have been saved by Jesus Christ and we can be thankful to God that it cost you how much? It was free. The best thing in this life is your salvation and you could not buy it. It truly was free. But free to us, not to God. The best thing that you have been given is free, but it was not cheap. The gospel as we understand it that God the Father sent His Son into the world, that the Son came obediently into this world and gave up His life, that very gospel, beloved, that we cherish so much, implies that God the Father gave and that He gave up His Son. Rather than covet, 
the Father gave. And the gospel implies as well that Jesus, for our sakes, came into this world to give up his life. And again, rather than covet, Jesus gave. And when you think about this commandment, all reaching, all searching, unmasking as it is, it should cause us to marvel that the one whom we worship and the one who loves us most, even our Savior, was entirely free from coveting. The life of Jesus was one of constant, rather than coveting, contentment. Jesus never coveted the things of this world. He never coveted his neighbor's house. He never coveted his neighbor's spouse. He never coveted his neighbor's animals, servants. All were safe with Jesus, which is a wonderful way of saying it. In contrast to us, if I left a $100 bill in front of you and walked out of my house, would it be safe with you? It's a piercing question. Is our neighbor's spouse safe with you? Is our neighbor's stuff safe with you? And yet with Jesus, all of these things were always safe with him. If the perfect opposite of coveting is contentment, Jesus not only was constantly content, he goes well beyond that. He was generous. The one who never coveted and was always content with what he had was on top of that uh, fully generous. And it's a beautiful thing to imagine. Jesus was constantly satisfied. And with what? He was satisfied with his Father in heaven. He was satisfied in knowing that heaven belonged to me. He was content with what the Father not only gave, he was content with what the Father chose to withhold. And he was generous with all that was entrusted to him. Why did he do that? How did he do that? Because his eyes were fixed upon the prize of heaven itself. To say it a little differently, and don't lose this point, all that Jesus truly wanted, and yes, there were things he actually desired, but all that Jesus truly wanted was where? It wasn't on a shelf in a store. You couldn't pick it up at a drive-thru. All that Jesus wanted was in heaven. He saw the brokenness and the emptiness of all the idols of this present evil age, this fallen world. He understood that in his Father's presence was fullness of joy, and with that he was not only content, he was truly satisfied. Contentment is sort of uh, the bottom line positive reaction to coveting. Satisfaction is its top. This is how Jesus resisted temptation, not simply by being content, but by being satisfied with his eyes fixed on the Father in heaven. What man could not do, that is, be content and refrain from coveting, the Son of Man did because he was satisfied with the presence of his Father. This is what Paul is talking about in Philippians 4. And it really is a marvelous language. When you think about it, uh, Paul says something I wonder if you and I could say. I doubt we could. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Well, that's a tough one. That's a really tough one. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I'm pretty good at whining and complaining. And some of you are too. How does Paul say such language? And he goes on to say that I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he goes on to quote what is arguably one of the misquoted, uh, most misquoted, misunderstood and misapplied verses of the Bible when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. One of the best moments in my Christian life was realizing how poorly I'd understood that verse. How terribly 
uh, we tend to take it out of context and misapply it to our lives. We would do well uh, to understand that what Paul is not talking about here is weightlifting. It's cute to put on the back of a Christian t-shirt and carry it into the gym right before you try to bench press far more than you know you actually can, as though somehow putting Philippians 4.13 on the back of your t-shirt is going to give you mega muscles and inspire somehow an adrenaline rush and help you put that 500-pound bar and weight up on the top, but it doesn't work that way. Uh, Philippians 4.13 is not a weightlifting power secret, but it is some kind of a secret. It is Paul's secret to being content, he says. It is a secret not because God is trying to hide it from people and no one else uh, can find it. He doesn't want it to be found. It's a secret because most people don't get it. Most people don't actually get what Paul is saying here. Most people don't understand the distinction between coveting and contentment, generosity and greed. This is the difference between the city of God and the city of man, heaven and hell, those below and those above. Where Paul learned this secret is none other than in Jesus Christ himself, but not simply in understanding that Jesus is some sort of an example that we ought to follow. That is right, but it is shallow. When Paul talks about contentment here, he's not simply saying, I'm following Christ's example. Of course it would be a appropriate for him to think that way, but he is saying something more. Paul's secret as it regards contentment is not simply that Jesus is his example of his contentment, but Jesus is the source of his contentment. Paul is content, satisfied with the life that he has because Jesus is his life, not the things of this world, not the perishable things that can be taken away not what you get at a drive-thru or find on his shelf. Jesus is everything to Paul. And having Jesus, Paul then can say, I have everything. I have learned the secret of how to abound or to be in abundance, plenty and in lack. In Christ he has everything because for Paul, Jesus truly is everything. True joy and lasting Contentment comes not simply by getting rid of our affections, but rather by properly ordering. This was our subject of study yesterday morning. The Christian life is not one described as though without desire, without passion, but rather by ordering those things and fixing them upon Christ himself. This really is Paul's secret, his secret weapon against coveting, and ours must be the same. This is all over the Bible. The psalmist said it very well in Psalm 73, 25, when he asked this question rhetorically, whom have I in heaven but you? And what is the answer? Nothing. Heaven would be nothing without God. What do I have here upon earth that truly lasts and truly matters? But I don't want you to misunderstand me here. I think it would be somewhat easy to do. Paul is not arguing here for for some sort of monastic self-denial. He's not uh, saying uh, that Christians should utterly deny themselves and run off and live in caves in in order to avoid uh, all forms of desire. Desire, in a certain sense, we've studied this in an earlier study, uh, desire, in a certain sense, is not all by itself a bad thing if we are desiring the right things. Affection is not a bad thing if our affections are properly placed. Passion is not a sinful thing if our passion is for that which is pleasing in the sight of God. There is a joke 
of a priest who supposedly was digging around deep, deep in an archive basement with old texts of the Bible, and he comes upon one and he screams out in anguish. They dropped the letter R. It was supposed to say, celebrate. <laughs> what Paul argued for is here is not asceticism, but contentment with God himself and with his heavenly provision. We think often about the first question and answer of our shorter catechism, our chief end, why we're here, why we exist. What is your chief end? What is your chief end? I love the fact that it's not simply worship, although that language all by itself would be seemingly enough. But your chief end, beloved, includes not just worship, but enjoying God. When God placed Adam in the garden and said, Adam, don't take that apple. Adam, you don't need that apple. The subtext is, Adam, I am enough. I am all that you actually need. And everything, all the little stuff, I will take care of that as well. And your chief end, beloved, is formed by a similar frame. Your chief end includes not simply worship, but enjoying the one whom you worship. By finding uh, your joy, your sufficiency, your identity, your satisfaction in Him. And so if you struggle with contentment, and we all do, if you struggle with coveting, and we all do, even the Heidelberg Catechism made it very clear that even in this life, those of us who are converted to Christ have only, and I, I love how generous the phrase is, only a small beginning of that holiness that we will one day attain when we reach perfection. And so as we struggle, the path forward, beloved, is far more than self-denial. This is where the whole monastic idea went entirely wrong. The goal, rather, is to enjoy God. The secret, the response, the mystery to coveting is to enjoy God, is to commune with God. Not the absence of passion, but as R.C. Sproul put it well, one holy passion of God himself. So I'll conclude by saying this. We'll go back to the beginning. We live in a world, I doubt you would argue with me, that has become wildly self-destructive because it is wildly self-absorbed. Self-absorbed consumerism, self-absorbed commercials, self-absorbed people. And in contrast, the church is called to a better way. In many ways, it's become one of the chief forms of testimony in the history of the church that Christians have been marked out by those who are not self-absorbed, but rather generous, who are not simply content, but actually have godly passions and affections that are ordered by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Contentment in Christ is not only a beautiful thing, it's a remarkable testimony to a selfish, self-absorbed world. It's one secret that we actually don't have to keep, and it's the one commercial the church can display before a watching world, and it really needs to hear it. So let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you that he passed through this world not as one who lusted and craved the things that he saw. There was a certain sense that far more than Adam or any other, Jesus had a right to take whatever he saw, for he was the king of this universe, the Lord of all that was made. And yet, 
He passed through. And not simply resisting the sin of coveting and embodying the idea of contentment, but he was satisfied with you. He rejoiced in you. He rejoiced to do the will of the Father. He looked forward to that time when he would be returned to heaven and that all things would be made right. And in your presence, he would find the fullness of joy. We ask, O Lord, that not only would we follow his example, we pray that our sufficiency and our satisfaction would be found in him. For many of us know, O Lord, that this world promises much, but in the morning it takes many things away. We know, O Lord, that this world tells us that we deserve, that we rule, that it's all about us to be selfish. And yet, O Lord, selfishness comes with a great cost. And so we ask, Lord, that you would turn our hearts to you, that you would fill us with joy and peace in believing, and that you would help us with the psalmist to say, Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you, though my heart and flesh may fail. God alone is my inheritance and my portion forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.